I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of BBC Radio 3's CD Review, and this podcast edition of Building a Library was recorded live in conversation in the CD Review studio when choral conductor and record producer Jeremy Summerlee joined me to compare and discuss recordings of Franz Schubert's final mass setting. It's his mass in E-flat, Deutsch 950, finished just a few weeks before Schubert's death in 1828 and not long after Beethoven's the year before. It's surrounded by great Schubert masterpieces, including the final piano sonatas and some extraordinary chamber music. I began by asking Jeremy whether the opening tells us what kind of a mass it's going to be. It's perplexing. Um, It's highly traditional in some respects and it's highly innovative in others. So the opening gives you some kind of idea. I think what it does is the very opening tells you that it's Viennese. That fantastic combination of woodwind and brass with just the cellos and basses, so there are none of the upper strings there. It's it's a fabulous sound world that Schubert's creating. And I find it quite an eerie piece because I'm never quite sure how much he wants us to think of it as a traditional piece and how much he wants to invent, as it were, the later 19th century. And he does invent the late 19th uh, century. I can't hear this piece without thinking of what's going to happen next. I can't hear this piece without thinking of the Brahms Requiem, which is really where we're yeah. going. And that's, and that's just... Well, and he also quotes Bach as well, doesn't he, in some, some of the fugue subjects. So, you know, he, he is looking both ways, he, quite he, obviously. Exactly. But then there's the other context for the music. You're just talking about, uh, you know, the musical sense of what's happening next. We also know, historically, what happens next. Um, Schubert is very close to his own death, and uh, it's hard to listen to this without thinking it's a Missa Solemnis. This must be, in some way... Um, intimations of mortality as well. But you've also said it, Mrs. Solemnis. Beethoven has just died, and there's the Mrs. Solemnis in this as well. There's everything. So it's it's where it's come from, and it's where it's where it's going. Now, I'll be honest, before we start, the fact is I feel a little bit nervous about this one. Normally when I sit in this chair, it's because I know the music intimately as a conductor or a singer or a player or sometimes all three. This one, I've never conducted. I will very soon, (laughs) but I haven't yet. And so it makes me a little bit nervous because some of what I'm saying is inevitably surmised because I don't actually know what it feels like under the hands. Well, we've got somebody here who definitely does. Uh, The next excerpt, we've got a uh, Bavarian conductor, um, classic recording from 1971, Wolfgang Zawalisch. Why have we gone for this one? Um, Zawalisch utterly fascinates me. Um, I I came to an understanding of his work far too late, really, and I wish I'd met the man, um, and now, of course, I never will. Um, What he does is he creates a sound world that I think nobody else does. So, for instance, at the start of this piece, he has his first horn and his first oboe, and he creates them into something which, to me, sounds like a saxophone. But the fact is, none of this is an accident. He's actually really trying to to get us to think about what Schubert is doing with his orchestra.
Well, that's Wolfgang Zawalisch with the Leipzig Radio Choir in Dresden Staatskapelle on Philips in 1971. And, Jeremy, listening to that again, it's an opening that knows exactly where it's going. The tempo is just beautiful, isn't it? Relaxed, but there's a sort of inevitability about it that's really special. Poise. Mm. Zawalisch has poise, uh, and particularly in that 1971 recording. It is, it is a glorious start to a glorious piece. Zawalisch makes you listen to it in, in the proper way. Some conductors are actually a bit scared of this piece, you can tell, and I can understand why. But Zawalisch goes, I know exactly how this is meant to sound. We get that. It's, it's a lullaby-like rocking almost, isn't it? There's gentle consolation somehow at the beginning there. Um, but the scale is interesting, isn't it? Because it's the last mass setting, and the last two, the A-flat and this E-flat, um, they, they're separate from the four earlier masses. There's a different sense of ambition, of scale and, and sense of purpose in, in Schubert's writing. Yes, I mean, sort of looked at from my sort of rather parochial point of view, you can't do this in church on a Sunday morning with an organ, like you can, for instance, with the Mass in G, the fourth one, which is, is, is gloriously well-suited, actually, to liturgies all around the world. Uh, but you can't do that with this one. It's a different conception, as I say. It really is, to me, a window on the, the late 19th century and what's about to happen. But he uses so much of that Viennese um, vocabulary in terms of the chords. I mean, there is quite a lot that, as it were, is, is the textbook of the time, the harmony textbook of the time. Great music um, to use for, as a teaching tool because it's got all the sort of chromatic harmony and all the wonderful chords that you can name um, that, that students are fond of doing. Uh, it has it all in this mass, but every time he leads you to a particular what you think is a known corner, he'll then expand something ridiculously with the orchestration and you realise that actually you're not in the Viennese textbook, you're actually looking forward. Well, it doesn't have to be... Big forces, the kind of scale that we've just heard, however gently, does it? There, there are, um, well, quite a few options, and I th we're going to hear a different kind of approach right now, I think, aren't we? Yes, indeed. The problem I have with this recording is that the orchestra is very forward in the mix and the choir is rather swamped, and I think you really need to hear the choral texture over the top of the orchestra. That's um, Frieda Bernius conducting the German Chamber Philharmonic, who I think are rather swamping the Stuttgart Chamber Choir there. It's a recording from 1995. Um, and also, Bernius has a wonderful sense of rubato, but unfortunately it's rather ruined by the fact there are so many edits. And unfortunately what you're hearing is the producer as it were, sort of contributing to Bernice's rubato, and it's a little bit confused. It's very subtle. I mean, you have to listen to it many times to work out what's going on, but I think that's what it is. It's overproduced. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it is a reminder of the role of that editing and production has in the feel of a performance, and especially sometimes with uh, live performances, concert recordings, where rehearsal footage is, is inter interposed, if you like. You sometimes feel those, those little lurches. It comes over as rubato. It often isn't. 
No, that's right. I mean, I'm always very aware of these things, being both a conductor and a producer. And, of course, I think sometimes I get it the wrong way around. And when I'm producing, I try to conduct and vice versa. But it is. I mean, it's the thing is, we sit here, you know, in the warmth of the studio on a Saturday morning talking about Tempe and Roboto and stuff like that. But there's a whole bank of technical stuff behind it. And the whole business of what happens in a recording session. Again, here we are sitting, sort of being critical. about. I mean, in, a, in, a, in the real world, no recording session is ever straightforward. And if it isn't the cement mixer or the starlings, it's that somebody's <laughs> not feeling you know, quite up to it that day. I mean, all these things can affect what's going on. And if the producer is having a bad morning as well, the whole thing can really start to fall apart. Well, we've got another, well, veering towards chamber-sized um, performance again next. Uh, Nicolas Arnoncourt, I'm expecting to be in good hands here. Yes, you are in good hands, and you've got the Arnold Schoenberg Choir, who I think of as a sort of bit of a Rolls-Royce type of instrument, but actually here, they're struggling a bit. Now, I'm not going to have a go at them. I think this is a very difficult piece, particularly for the sopranos. There's quite a lot of high, sustained writing. It's not ludicrously high, but it is high and sustained, and actually, you'll hear the Arnold Schoenberg Choir here, they're struggling a bit. Um, and it's quite a tight sound, so that they're obviously they're letting the piece get on top of them, and that, that won't do. Nicolas Arnoncourt in 1995 conducting the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, but the Arnold Schoenberg Choir having, for them, with their high standards, an off day, I think. They're not alone either, are they, Jeremy? Because there's a surprising number of choirs and our contenders that find this sometimes a harder thing than I'd have expected, but it, as you said, it's not easy. There are very few recordings where you can put on the first track and be satisfied that the choir is in pitch. That, that's very unusual. That doesn't normally happen when you've got performers such as we're dealing with here. I mean, that the Arnold Schoenberg choir singing there is really not good. I mean, unfortunately, it was shown up there by that horn entry that showed that the tenors and basses, you know, we're thinking, are they under? Oh, oh yes, they, they are. are. <laughs> so, um, but you get the same thing with Helmut Rilling. Now, you know I'm a, a Rilling fan, um, but, but again, you get the same thing. Helmut Rilling conducting the Gechinger Kantorei and Bach Collegium Stuttgart in 
the opening of Schubert's E-flat major Mass Deutsch 950. And the choir sounding, well, a little undernourished alongside the, the, the richness of Schubert's scoring in the strings there. I think that's right. I think this is no reflection on the Gechinger Kantrai or, indeed, on Helmut Rilling. It just shows you that Schubert was actually doing something that was manifestly different. I mean, his writing for the orchestra and for the choir is challenging. The sounds that he's making are new. It's very difficult for us to put on our 1828 ears, but you really need to with this piece. And that texture there, the whole business of how it's structured and how it sounds, was monumentally innovative for the time. Beethoven has just died. And this is, a, this is really the new order. And the fact that we only had a few months of a world in which you've no Beethoven, but you have Schubert, I think is, is, is a very sad thing. What would have happened it's next? I know we're always idea, speculating about Just, what yeah. would have happened next. Uh, well, we've got Schubert's Gloria next. And, well, he designs this beautiful, upward-leaping, optimistic opening for it. Yes, and it's very easy to make this a bit too bouncy. Um, you've got... Sir Charles McCarris here recording in 2008 and he really knows the score well and he does everything right but I think he's just a bit too self-consciously bouncy at, at the opening of this Gloria. Gloria from Schubert's E-flat major mass from Sir Charles McCarris, the Dresden State Opera and Staatskapelle, live recording from 2008 on the Karas label. So live, not necessarily an advantage here. Um, well, it depends what, you, what you're <laughs> listening to records for. If you're listening to records like we listen to records where with a professional interest in criticising them, then no, it's not helpful. But actually, there's a lot to enjoy in this McCarris recording. It, it is, I mean, there are some edits, but it is, it is essentially a live performance and it does take you on a journey, as you might expect. Well, the McCarris. journey as well is interesting in this movement because the, I think this is the movement where if you, if you came into the room partway through, you might mistake it for a Bruckner Mass setting. Yes, you wouldn't know exactly what you were listening to. Um, and I think it's therefore extremely important to do what Schubert says in the score. So that begins, that glory begins, allegro, moderato e maestoso. Now, there are two parts to that. There's the allegro bit and there's the moderato bit. And you have to get it right. I think Macarius gets it absolutely right. And I'm sorry to say that I don't think Giulini does. I don't think this is allegro in any way. That's Carlo Maria Giulini in 1995. They spent a week performing this piece live and then they cut uh, the various um, options together. It's a nice, transparent, recorded sound. It's very pleasing in its detail, but as you heard there, it's a little bit ponderous from time to time. It sounds like, our producer was just saying, it sounds as though, you know, ladies and gentlemen, take it a little slower in rehearsal and they've forgotten to speed it up again. It, it does sound a little bit like a re rehearsal take, isn't it? But it's not. It's actually part of a live but performance. But on the other hand, it's got the sound that Giolini gets when he's... a work that's special for him, the, the meditative quality, the intensity. And those are things I rather want with this. You get the most astonishing piano singing 
on this recording from Giulini. It really is. In some details, it is absolutely fabulous. And I wouldn't want to be without, without this one, but I can't recommend it wholeheartedly, I'm afraid. Well, we must be able to get some of the magic without having to take it that slow. So yes. who, who, who should we have next? Well, I think we need to turn this round because I'm sitting here criticising some extremely famous ensembles, some extremely famous conductors, from the point of view, as I've said, of never actually having conducted this piece. So we've actually got to turn it round. That's quite easy to do with Nicolas Arnoncourt from 2004 with his Berlin forces. Um, this is the... Um, I think th this is one of the ones that I very early on realised was actually going to be part of the shortlist. That's Nikolaus Arnenkort in 2004 with the Berlin Rundfunkkorps and the Berlin Philharmonic. I think this is, uh, this is a wonderful creation. And as I said, very quickly, I realised this is one of the ones that I was very interested in. You're using modern instruments. In fact, mostly we're talking about modern instruments here when we're dealing with recordings of this piece. And normally that's absolutely fine. But just occasionally when you get things, for instance, you just heard there, you've got trombones, three trombones and two bassoons playing together. You don't quite get the balance that you need and sometimes you're missing out on some low thirds and some chords. That would be sorted out with period instruments. But, but let, let's get over that. We'll, we can deal with that later. But if you're going to hear a modern rendition, then I think uh, Arnencourt here with the Berlin Philharmonic is, is probably one of the ones where you want to go. The Rundfunkkorps are fabulous. The Berlin Phil is fabulous. It's lovely singing and the cellos. Arnenkor's Deutsche Grammophon recording with the Berlin Radio Choir and Berlin Philharmonic in 2004. Luxurious forces, the cello sound. It was absolutely gorgeous. You're dead right. The whole thing is beautiful. And, and I love it. Again, you can hear the business of Schubert entering, as it were, the high 19th century. But there's Mozart there as well. Clearly there's Mozart there. But it's Mozart's on stilts, as it were. There's, <laughs> there, there's a difference. It's ultra-romantic. I'm expecting and, to feel similar qualities from the next contender, actually, because we've got um, Claudio Abbado and the Vienna Philharmonic. Now, you'd expect some of the same kinds of qualities from, from that lineup, wouldn't you? Yes, indeed, and there's nothing wrong with the cellos of the Vienna Phil, let me tell you that. But the singers are a bit more plummy here. Now, I mean, can you actually say that Viennese singers are plummy? I'm not sure it works, but if you hear it, you might see what I mean, but there's nothing wrong with this orchestra.
Claudio Abado, the Vienna Philharmonic on Deutsche Grammophon as well. 1986, another um, concert recording, live one. And I... Well, cellos, absolutely um, beautiful. Um, interesting that it was such a different tempo from uh, the one we heard before it, and yet also perfectly, perfectly lovely. It, it still works. I think one of the things that is confirming to me that this really is a great piece is that you can do it in a number of different ways and the piece will survive. You're still knocked, absolutely knocked over um, by this piece. But this is the problem with live recording. And this is, I mean, you and I have, a, I suppose, a sort of particular allergic reaction to this because we have that guilty secret that we started life as um, sound engineers. So we think about these things probably more than anybody else. But when we got to that Grazias Agimus lead, it was clearly an edit. But then on the record it says live recording. So what, what does live mean? Uh, I find that a little bit distressing. What you really need to do with a bardo um, is to get hold of a DVD. There's a DVD of him conducting the Orchestra Mozart and the Arnold Schoenberg Choir from 2002. The performance is what the performance is. It's very, very good. But what it really is about is a bardo. There he is off the book. And you can tell that he has absorbed every crotchet of this piece. It's absolutely inside him. I, just, I, I can just watch him. Just mesmerising. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And he tells you his, his look, his whole demeanour tells you how important this piece is. Well, something that hasn't happened yet is a soloist. Schubert's keeping them for something rather special. Yeah, that's right. You get, you, 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 you're actually you, you're a few minutes into the creed, into the credo, before they even, the, the soloists are even are wheeled on. And when they do, they don't have, they don't have, a, they don't have a, a forward role until they actually appear, and they don't stay there for very long. Um, what we're about to hear now, so just sort of calm yourself, we're going to go down now 10 hertz. We're going to go from 440 to 430. It, it is a perceptible change. We're now going to go to period instruments and a slightly lower pitch. first period instrument recording of uh, Schubert's Mass, the change of, of, of timbre, really quite startling, never mind the, mind the pitch. But um, again, beautiful cello line as well. Absolutely. It's, it's uh, Richard Hickox conducting Collegium Musicum 90. And uh, the singers, the soloists are Mark Padmore and James Gilchrist. You could do a lot worse than that. You certainly could. And they are absolutely loving it. And I think one of the reasons they're particularly loving it, well, apart from the fact it's one of the great tunes of the early 19th century, uh, is that this is from 2007. They'd done the prom. So you can tell that they're sort of relaxing into this recording because they know how it feels to do it live. So they take all, as it were, all the smell of the gig and then they put it onto this recording. And, and you get to that bit and you just sit back and you go, well, that's, that's how you do it. Now, the thing is, they do make it sound a little bit easy because it is such a great tune and they sing it so well. But actually, on a number of recordings, when people are trying to respect the rubato, which that tune clearly needs, they don't quite get it right. Uh, and that's what, you'll, that's what you'll hear here. So you wait a long time. You wait till the credo for the soloist to come in. 
they've got to get it right. That's what happens when the soloists aren't quite on the same page. Uh, the St. Martin Dom Cantorai and Mainz Dom Orchestra, conducted by Matthias Breitschaft, live and unedited, they tell us, and the a huge acoustic, presumably, of the Mainz Cathedral. Um, yes, well. y- you get used to the large acoustics, to be honest. Um, but it feels good in there, doesn't it, in, at, at the right speeds? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, And it is, as it says, live and unedited, and I rather respect that. Um, Let's go to something which is live and audibly patched, if you want to have it. That's a Bardo in 1986. Now, here you've got some old-school soloists. That's a Bardo and the Vienna Philharmonic again in 1986. Uh, tenor Jerry Hadley, um, tenor two, Jorge Peter, and um, soprano, Jeremy? This is 1986. It's a live recording. This is um, Carita Matila, and she's 26 at the time. She's made her Covent Garden debut a year before, uh, three years after she won famously the Cardiff Singer of the World, the the first one. Um, It's a glorious voice, but I'm not sure it's appropriate here in this particular piece. Now, that doesn't go for all the old school singing, because I think if we return to that wonderful Savalish... 1971 recording, you've got old school soloists there, but I think these really work.
Well, that's soprano Helen Donat with tenors Francisco Araita and Adolf Dallapozza with Wolfgang Zawalisch conducting the Bavarian Radio Orchestra and Chorus. Actually, no, I picked the wrong one, didn't I? That's the other recording. So this is the Dresden one in 71. This is Helen Donat, so same soprano, but Peter Schreier and Hans-Joachim Roch. That's right, yes, yes. Schreier and, and Roch. Roch was just about to take Bach's job in Leipzig, as it were. Obviously not take, take over straight oh, really? from him, but I think he was the 15th or something yeah. sort of conductor of the Tomanacor. Yes, he was just about to go and do that. But, I mean, what a singer. But, again, you know, Schreier now we think of as a conductor, you know, but th- there's a reason that these people are good at what they do with their hands is because they know how it feels on the voice. I think that's, I, I think that's spectacular singing. If we move on uh, a decade to Savalish's 1980 recording, you've still got uh, Helen Donat, who is, I think, just unassailably good in this piece. Uh, but the tenors are, as you said, this is the Mexican Francisco Ariza and the Austrian Adolf um, Dalla Pozza. And I, I, I think this is one of the great duos. I mean, in, in, in one sense, not the most famous duo you can imagine. But I mean, listen to them. They're really feeding off each other. that a lot. So the communication exactly as you said and you can feel them just reacting to one another and Zavalish underneath them just sort of caressing the tempo a little just to make it match. And, mm-hmm. Well it feels almost as though you could take those three soloists and um, sort of step straight for the Verdi Requiem. Exactly <laughs> that. And I mean I keep saying the same thing but, but this piece is all about opening the window on the late 19th century and those soloists there really do so and it's wonderful you can just feel Wolfgang Zavalish just going okay do it. That's exactly what's about to happen, so so go go for your life. Well, that was Helen Donat, uh, Francisco Araita and Adolf Dallapozza. The just two say, we didn't hear, Yes, though. yes. Yeah. There, the other two soloists on the recording are Dietrich Fischer-Diskau and Brigitte Fassbender. So it's a pretty starry lineup. It, it's very fine. This 1980 Zavalish recording is really fine. Well, let's go to the to the other extreme, if you like. Let's, let's go back to our period instrument competition. Yeah, indeed. So we've got Richard Hickox. Um, I think what happens is the recording slightly runs out of steam as it goes on. But again, it's proof of the fact that these choir parts are really not easy. But I think this Sanctus is also really not easy. And I've got here, because, you know, I like to do this sort of thing, I've got here Schubert's own short score handwriting of this Sanctus. And what it shows to me is just how important the chording is in this Sanctus. It's actually very difficult to tune. I mean, I know we're talking about proper grown-up professional singers here, but there are aspects of this piece that are just phenomenally difficult to get right. Uh, And it's very easy, I think, to feel threatened by some of Schubert's harmonies. Well, it's Schubert. You know, how difficult can it be? The answer is, it's extremely difficult.
signs of tiredness, possibly? It's Richard Hickox and Clegan Music and 90 on Shandos. And I, I, I really enjoyed this series as it was being released. I learned a great deal about the Schubert Masses from hearing these performances. But um, is it still up there as far as you're concerned for period instruments? We haven't heard another one. Yeah, I mean, this is the one. I mean, if you want period instruments, then you will have Hickox and you won't be disappointed in any way. You've got a fabulous lineup of um, soloists. Uh, it, it's just that as the piece progresses, and I suspect that what's happening is what happens in recording sessions. You start to run out of time, people get a little bit tense. But actually it sort of suits this work, which is, should be a little bit on the edge. And what's the great thing is that, that Hickox really responds to the drama, and this sanctus he really makes it. There's own. a little bit of fire and brimstone oh, there, isn't absolutely. it? Oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean, he, 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 he loves it. He's showing off Schubert. He's saying, look, this is what Schubert was capable of doing. And again, it's the what would have happened next. I mean, we, well, we've no idea what would have happened next, but it would have been massive. I suspect. I had somebody on Twitter um, quoting Daniel Barenboim as saying, if Schubert had lived longer, we'd have no need um, for Bruckner and Marlowe, which is an interesting way of thinking about as, it, isn't it? As you've just heard there. I mean, yeah. exactly that. That, that. that clip, I think, demonstrates that, that absolutely. Well, does anyone get that kind of feel with modern instruments and maybe chamber forces, the, the sort of middle way we're getting more used to hearing these days? I suppose that's what you get with Michel Corbeau's... Um, this, is, this is very slick. This is absolutely everything in its right place on, on modern instruments. It's slick. It's kind of got that defamiliarisation thing that we're all about. In other words, take a well-known work and sort of try to do sort of things with it that make it, make it a bit more modern. Uh, Michel Corbeau's with his Lausanne forces. Um, that, it's a very slick performance, this one, but I'm not entirely sure that this piece needs slick. And there's also an element, if you're talking about defamiliarisation, then you've got to, be, got to be jolly careful that actually the piece you're talking about is very familiar, and this piece isn't so much. So I find this recording quite odd, because it's trying to modernise the piece, trying to make us think that this is sort of, you know, this piece has been around for a long time, so let's try and find out sort of what, what's normal about it rather than what's unusual. And that, to me, I find a little bit distressing. So I think there's a sort of philosophy there that doesn't quite sort of marry up to the music. It's a good recording. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's one of the best in terms of accuracy. But I'm not sure I really want accuracy with this piece. In fact, I want to throw caution to the winds. I want somebody that can play the right notes at the right time, but I really want somebody who feels it with every fibre of their being. So should we just cut to the chase and say... Well, we're nearly there, aren't we? Because yeah. um, can, can we announce finalists? Uh, where, how many yeah. do we still have on the table at this point? Zavalish and Zavalish. So that's... that's well, that's interesting, and it's going to be tr tricky as well, isn't it? You... Yeah, it is. I mean, there was a point when I was doing my listening when I thought it was actually going to be Harnancourt against Harnancourt. Well, I was expecting Harnancourt from yeah. what you were saying earlier, but there and, we are. And so I did. And the more I listened to the piece and the more I got inside the piece, the more I spent time with the score, and particularly as soon as I started to look at Schubert's handwriting, a lot of things came into focus, and I think there's a serendipity, funnily enough, that Savalis brings to it. It's not. It's obviously very carefully considered. Years and years of thinking about that piece. But what he, what he makes us feel, Savalis, in both of his recordings, is that somehow it's leaping off the score, and actually the ink is still wet. And I think Harmancourt is very, very good, very nicely prepared, and his forces on both recordings are great. But the fact that with Savalis, you do get this idea. You can sort of smell the manuscript paper and you can feel Schubert's hands scratching across the page you can hear Schubert actually I think in, in these in the Savalish recordings you can hear Schubert surprising even himself and thinking well, can I do that can I do that in a mass can I do that in a sanctus well that sense of I just did really and important. he's there you, yeah, you look absolutely. at this you think you can tell I, I've actually just written that chord progression I can't quite believe it myself well let's go with it what happens next okay so how are we going to decide between these two 
Well, let's hear a bit of the uh, 1980 recording with the Bavarian forces. There is a majesty about this that I find utterly compelling. Wolfgang Zawalisch in 1980, his EMI recording with the forces of Bavarian Radio. Uh, so, Jeremy, what for you are the, well, if there are main differences, any major differences between these two Zawalisch recordings um, made nine years apart? There's a poise in the 1971 recording that I don't think you get on any other recording. But what, in a sense, ruins that for me, and this is grossly unfair, is, is because of the edits. There are too many audible edits on the 1971 recording. We know why that is. I mean, you're cutting magnetic tape. And you've only got a couple of goes at it because you get the sweat on the, on the, on the tape. And you, you, can only, you can only make an edit a number of times. And unfortunately, they are very audible in the 1971 recording. But in terms of a conductor getting it, this is what Zavalis does. He knows what is ordinary about this piece. He knows what is Viennese in early 19th century. And he knows what is extraordinary. And I love both performances. But on this 1971 recording, you really get the feeling that what he's doing is he's performing an audible analysis for his players, for his singers, for his soloists, and for us, the listener. He's going, look how this piece is constructed. Look what's normal. And look what's unusual. That's Wolfgang Zawalisch with his Dresden forces in 1971, um, showing us how surprising the score is and how Viennese. Yes, indeed. And how beautiful. Or, or it, it, it's got the poise of no other recording. So if you didn't hear that edit at that last Donna Nobis Parchem entry, then I would get this one. If that's the kind of thing that doesn't concern you, then the 1971 is for you. If it does, then I think you need the 1980 recording, which anyway, with the Bavarian forces, which anyway is a glorious, glorious performance, not least because you've got Donat, Fassbender, Ariza, Dallapozza and Fischer Discount. I was going to say, for me, this is the lineup of soloists I want, actually, out of these two recordings. And uh, as we're listening to the concluding Agnus Day and straining, I suppose, to find peace in the darkness. Uh, maybe we should remind ourselves that you know, Schubert was dead within weeks of finishing this and, and never heard it performed other than in his head. It's tragic, isn't it? But, and, and what you get is Zavalish really understanding every aspect of the context of this piece as well as what the notes should sound like and how the, the orchestral textures should work against the voices and so on. It's intelligent, it's sensitive, but it's never self-conscious and it's all about Schubert.
The end of Schubert's Mass in E-flat, Deutsch 950, with Wolfgang Zawalisch and the Choir and Symphony Orchestra of Bavarian Radio in Munich in 1981, providing just what reviewer Jeremy Summerlee is looking for in this great late Schubert masterpiece. So that's Jeremy's overall Building a Library recommendation. It's Zawalisch's EMI recording, not the one he made for Philips. It's still available as a download from Warner Classics, with some of Zawalisch's other Schubert Mass recordings. You won't find it on its own on CD, though, but it is in a slimline budget box of Zawalisch conducting Schubert's sacred and secular choral works. Eleven CDs, but at very little more than a single full-priced CD. So you get a lot of fine Schubert for your money. You'll find full details on the CD Review website, and you've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library. Next time, Building a Library is a Sibelius anniversary special for BBC Radio 3's Northern Lights season of Nordic music and culture. Gillian Moore compares recordings of Jean Sibelius's Symphony No. 1, the start of one of the 20th century's great symphonic journeys. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for CD Review, Saturdays from 9 on BBC Radio 3, 90 to 93 FM, online and on digital radio. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and for terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio 3.